everyone. This is Beige with Public. Our guest today is Michael Rechtenwald, a scholar of 19th century secularism and the author of many books, including most recently, The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty, Unraveling the Global Agenda. Michael's story is fascinating. In 2016, he was canceled at NYU, where he used to be a professor of liberal and global studies. We discussed the chaos surrounding that time and his subsequent questioning of many tenets and beliefs, including those that identified him as a leftist. In fact, he was a Marxist. Like so many, he became disillusioned with progressive and leftist politics and fascinated with the dearth of scholarship on left-wing authoritarianism at a moment when the left was indeed becoming alarmingly authoritarian and unrecognizable. We get his takes on the World Economic Forum, and he does a killer Klaus Schwab impersonation, on global corporatism, transhumanism and eugenics, the COVID regime, the sorry state of the arts, and where the counterculture might come from next, as well as how he plans to, in his words, thwart the global elites and their designs on us. In fact, we have an update in that regard. Since we first spoke, Michael declared he's seeking the presidential nomination of the Libertarian Party in the 2024 elections. He's associated with the Mises Caucus, which espouses a more right-wing platform and is now dominant within the Libertarian Party. We caught up with him to discuss his platform, so there's a bonus interview at the end of the first one. I absolutely disagree with him on many issues, but maybe we can bring him back to argue about some of them. In the meantime, the point here was to let him make his pitch and you decide for yourself. He has many great essays and book chapters that are available on his website, which I recommend checking out. Links to that and to his campaign information are in the show notes. So I would love to hear about your background. In a sense, what happened to that guy? He used to be a Marxist. Uh, maybe some are already familiar, but you were prof- you were a professor at NYU and you were part of the left. And then you started tweeting the wrong thing and the rest is history. Can you yeah. take us back to the climate at the time? And what was the first kindling or the last straw? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, here I am, a professor at NYU. I'm not teaching Marxism, by the way. I, I don't. I didn't teach uh, political theory or anything like that. I taught uh, cultural history, history of science. Uh, I was a, I am, I guess, uh, still a world class scholar of secularism, and uh, that came out of the 19th century in uh, Great Britain. Uh, there was a, a movement called secularism. Uh, it's called it's a world uh, view secularism. That I, that was my main fa- focus of uh, research. I did history of science, and anyway, uh, I was uh, uh, up for promotion to full professor at NYU, and uh, it was the fall of uh, nineteen. Uh, I'm sorry, 2016, and. Um, a lot of things had been uh, bothering me heretofore. Uh, a number of issues were on the radar. And I found my, uh, you know, for example, there was uh, the Trump uh, election, you know, there was the Trump candidacy and uh, uh, the Hillary Clinton candidacy for president. And uh, the uh thing that was striking me was that uh, the leftists had gone off the rails and uh, that they uh, were expecting people to, on their side to believe more and more outlandish things. And uh, they were taking more and more outlandish positions 
on everything from gender to uh, uh, to uh, speech. They, you know, I noted that uh, the people who I whom I thought really were champions of free speech were completely trying to shut it all down. Anything they didn't like, uh, I thought they were creating uh, the alt right by virtue of their own identity politics. And I said all these things. So what I was doing was uh, started a Twitter account in the fall of uh, 2016. It was it was then called, and has since been canceled from Twitter, never to be restored. It was called Anti PC NYU Prof, and uh, th- that was the uh, handle. The name that I gave myself was the Deplorable NYU Professor, and. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to identify with the deplorables that Hillary Clinton had just disparaged in her comments. Uh, I wasn't even so much in support of Trump. I I was in support of the people that were being disparaged like this by these Mm -hmm. global elitists like Hillary Clinton, these coastal global elitists. I really never liked them, frankly. Uh, I never liked Democrats. Um, I always thought they were hypocrites and, and worse. And, um, you know, even when I was a Marxist, I used to watch Fox News just because I found it more interesting and entertaining than the other side, which was, <laughs> uh, I, I found it to be funny in a way. And uh, I also did not like all the uh, the racial, you know, the weaponization of race and uh, identity and uh the crazy uh, identitarian things they weren't uh, required. I had had a run in uh, in the spring of the previous year of the same year, 2016 in the f- spring semester uh, where I tried to hire, I was a chair of a hiring committee charged with hiring a uh, journal, a professor of journalism and writing and uh, all the worst candidates, I mean, all the best candidates got bumped from uh, contention because they weren't the right identity group uh, members. Uh, so the best candidates were dismissed and the worst were promoted and the worst possible one got the job after I got thrown off of the committee for objecting. Just all kinds of stuff like this. And uh so I did this Twitter account, and then soon after that, the uh, student newspaper uh, started to s- try to figure out who I was. This uh, NYU student newspaper is called the uh, Washington Square Times, I think. I, I forget the name of it. Uh, but anyway, they uh, one of these reporters tracked me down and asked me to interview with them, and I did it. I did the interview, and I, this uh, account had been anonymous on Twitter, but now I came out as myself and uh, really laid it on. Uh, and uh, so there was a moment in 2016 when I was standing in a hotel where I was staying because I, I liked, actually, I commuted from Pittsburgh for a while because I didn't really like being in New York that much, where I said to myself, if I, as an NYU professor, if I state what I'm thinking, then all hell is going to break loose. And sure enough, it did. Uh Within two days of that interview appearing, I was called into the dean's office and coerced into a leave of absence. I was condemned by a committee called the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Group, 
Uh, they said I was guilty for the structure and content of my thoughts. So they basically condemned me for wrong think. Uh, and then I realized just how totalitarian the left was, and they all started canceling me at once, not just inside, but outside the university. Uh, this communist group I was a member of, they basically put me on a show trial and um, uh, were trying to accuse me of all these infractions because now I was getting national attention. Uh, the story was picked up by the uh, New York Post and then Fox News and then everywhere. And uh, they thought that, uh, that I had betrayed the, their cause. I saw that the, uh, the whole left started to uh, circle the wagons and consolidate in, in a po- opposition to Trump because they were deeming Trump like the enemy, you know, like evil incarnate. And uh, I didn't go along with that. And that was the pro- that was part of the problem. So, uh, you know, they all came down on me so heavily and they traumatized me, really. Uh, the uh, the brutes, the kind of uh, nastiness, the uh, vituperation, the, the, the language they used on me, everything. It just said, I said, I want nothing further to do with these people ever again. Did your colleagues at the time come to your defense? No. There was one colleague that tried to mount a really tepid defense against a bunch of emailers on an official NYU listserv who were attacking me, calling me every name in the book for unbelievable, for no real reason. They they started calling me a sexist, a racist, a alt-right, a Nazi, devil, uh, Satan, and things like this. <laughs> which today, if they were to do that, I would just write back LOL. But um, then I actually cared what they thought. I, I wouldn't care right now. I wouldn't care anymore. Uh, and I don't care about whatever people say anymore at all. But, uh, yeah, uh, that was uh, 2016. By by the fall of uh, – by no- that was in the fall of 2016. By November, I ended up voting for Trump. And um, – it was more like a spite vote. I, I really wanted to spite the other side, and uh, <laughs> and and uh, uh, you know, I liked the irreverence of, of the Trump uh, campaign, and uh, I liked the uh, I, I despised those coastal elitists. I always did, uh, and so when I saw that uh, the left was turning into uh, First of all, a totalitarian mob. But secondly, that they were basically, you know, they showed their disdain for the vast majority of the American people, in the, the people in the flyover states, or what has been has had been called by Sam Francis the Middle American radicals. When they right. showed their the, how much they despised this group. I, I felt like I was betrayed and I wanted nothing to do with that because I actually identified with these people. Those were my people. I really enjoyed reading. Um, there's a chapter of your book. I believe it's springtime for snowflakes in which you t- talk about kind of discovering theory, the seduction of it. Um, and I'm wondering if there are ideas and ideologies that you once found liberatory and vital as a leftist that you now see as fundamentally destructive? Does it have something to do with 
the evolution, the application at scale, or did you just kind of look at everything that you had ever believed and and reassess and and come come out in a different place? Yeah, I had a kind of gestalt shift that happened almost. Uh, it almost happened uh, kind of instantly. And when I had that gestalt shift, it was like the world appeared to me in a whole different way. And that is so that everything that I had studied and read and believed to some extent came, I saw it through a different lens entirely. So when I wrote Springtime for Snowflakes, I was just processing all the stuff that I had read and all the thoughts that and the ideas that were promulgated and more or less pelted at me. And I reassessed them all on the spot. Yeah. yeah so I reassessed them all. And um, like uh, Marxism, postmodern theory, fem- radical feminism, all of it, I rehashed it all through. And kn- I knew what I thought about them, but I didn't know exactly what I thought about them until I wrote it out in that book. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. I wanted to ask, you wrote the foreword to the new edition of Political Ponderology, right? Yes. Yeah. I wonder if you can tell us how this book impacted your own thinking, how you were able to relate it to your experience. Sure. Um, So, you know, Political political Ponderology was a book that I got um, exposed to through, I had set up a well, workshopping group called the Rectenwald uh, Writing Treehouse, Reading and Writing Treehouse, in which a, a bunch of people uh, basically agreed to be in a group that would exchange their writing and would read each other's work and give feedback and so forth. Uh, sort of like a writing workshop. And uh, one of the comp- uh, members was Harrison Coeli who joined in and he started to feed uh, the group and me uh, chapters from that book. Mm. And uh, I had been studying um, the history of leftist criminality. Let's put it like that. Uh, I had known about leftist criminality, but I don't know why I never thought it meant anything. I thought, so uh, that was just, you know, there were some mistakes made like killing a hundred million people. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, uh, so the, there were many, ex, you know, there's different explanations floated for like why, why totalitarian, why Marxism, for example, is totalitarian. Um, there's the economic and political, of course, explanations and, uh, but then this one was different. It was like, uh, I thought, wow, this is a wholly different uh, approach. Here we have somebody approaching uh, totalitarianism from a psychological perspective. And I, I had never seen that before. Now, call me ignorant in that regard, but I just hadn't read that kind of material. My study had always been uh, of ideology and history and uh, political theory and things like that. Yeah. So this was a different approach and I found it very, I first, I was like, this, this can't be right. That You can't explain mass movements and totalitarian uh, regimes by virtue of the psychology 
the individual psychology of the members. I thought, no, how can that be true? It would, but then I read it, and uh, the more I read it, I, I, came, I became to think there's, some, there's something to this. And it followed the patterns that I noted in history, but also in the contemporary moment of what was happening. Uh, the way, how many, you know, like who was succumbing to this totalitarian regime? Uh, who, was, who were the believers? Who were the uh, dissidents? How many, even what percentage of people uh, fall into either camp? Uh, it all, it all, it, it was all like, uh, it was, it was like very almost precisely correct regarding our contemporary situation. So I found it very, uh, very compelling. And so I was asked to write the forward and, uh, I did. I just want to read a piece from that because historically there really, you know, as you alluded to, there hasn't been so much attention to, left-wing authoritarianism that's right uh you know all of most of the study has been on on right wing and you know maybe with good reason maybe for other reasons but you wrote in in this uh for you said in attempting to research leftist political criminality i was both amazed and enraged at how the academy had buried much of the history for example searches for the practices of struggle sessions and auto critique, which were so prevalent during the Cultural Revolution in China, yielded next to nothing. These and related topics were either not treated or else simply disappeared. I suspected that a vast cover-up had been undertaken. So mm. I, I'm curious because a lot of there, there's this renewed interest in political ponderology, and since around 2015 or 16, there have been several papers that have come out that sort of look at. Uh, psychopathology of yeah. left-wing authoritarianism, personality yes. traits, things like this. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to kind of look at how the historical focus, this myopic focus might have shaped the field. So I'm wondering what you think of that coming from this other perspective, because you're, you're not in the field of psychology. You come with these other, you know, this other arsenal of tools, but what do you make of that? Like how the field has been shaped, um, with this historical attention to just one extreme of the spectrum. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've read some of the papers you're referring to about left-wing authoritarianism. Yeah. And I found it very striking and really unbelievable that, that, that left-wing authoritarianism hasn't been studied really much and that it's always been assumed that right-wing ideology is, is the authoritarian ideology. But really, this is this strikes me as completely the inverse of reality now, because as a matter of fact, left-wing ideology is totalitarian by definition. It is a totalitarian ideological formation, and the right-wing is really a reaction to that. Uh, it's really a reaction to left-wing totalitarianism. So I was very surprised when I've, I was heartened when I saw those papers about left-wing authoritarianism, but when it referred to the fact that the literature had no, it was a paucity, if not an utter lack of uh, studies on left-wing authoritarianism, it was like, what? I mean, the fact of the matter is the left-wing, uh, left, left-wing totalitarianism, the left in power, have the, have been the most murderous uh, regime have conducted the most uh, murderous regimes in history. I mean, 
the left has killed four times more people than Nazism did. Uh, and it's, it's still counting because we still have China and, uh, and North Korea uh, and, uh, and some, some of South America. But uh, the, the practice of uh, leftist authori- uh, totalitarianism, which I think it is endemically totalitarian, is uh, shocking. I mean, what, what's been done in the name of equality. That's the interesting thing is that more cr- crime, more murder, more bloodshed, more repression – more imprisonment, uh, more of all kinds of horrific activities have been conducted in the name of so-called equality than in the name of supremacy by a long, long shot. So um, I was very um, interested in then the psychological approach to this and surprised that there was no real history to this approach except a few papers that got published recently, as you pointed out. Yeah. It is interesting. It's it's almost like there's this selective amnesia with newer generations. I mean, my father, he was much older. He actually fought in World War II, you know, and he was obsessed with the evil of, of Hitler, but also very keenly aware to Stalin as a just, you know, one of the most murderous yeah. forces in, in the history of the world. And it's it's very strange that there's this kind of blind spot. I And I wonder, because what I find so interesting about your critique is that in some ways you almost come at it from a leftist perspective. Like there's this still traces of like a Marxian analysis. Yes. Which I think is amazing. It really appeals to me. And I think it would have a broad appeal, you know, to people in different places on the spectrum. But why do you think that so many so-called leftists don't see the authoritarianism, the oppression, the tyranny right in front of us? Like, why yeah. is this a phenomenon? And maybe it does have to do with, you know, political ponderology and, and the psychological uh, yeah. dimension. That's, that's a great question. There's a lot to plumb there. Uh, first of all, let me just say that I think Solzhenitsyn put it right when he tried to explain why leftist criminality has been so neglected, if not utterly buried and uh, uh, unexamined. He, you know, he said the, the, the reason is that the same people are in charge of society. <laughs> that's why that, that's why they are, their crimes have been, uh, uh, you know, disappeared from history. Uh, and they've been absolved. You know, I mean, it should be, it should be as reprehensible to declare yourself a, a communist as to declare yourself a Nazi or a neo-Nazi because, you know, they're both motorist regimes, and I'm not excusing Nazism by any stretch. They're both motorist regimes. I mean, Patton said, and I don't know, you know, what he meant exactly is hard to tell. He said we fought the wrong enemy. Now, what I think he meant was we, we fought the right enemy, but we forgot about the other one, which was communist uh, the Stalinist uh, regime, which took off, you know, took so much of Eastern Europe as a result of World War II, uh, opportunistically grabbed all these areas and uh, subjected them to this communist dictatorship. But anyway, um, to get to the real point of the question, and that is, why are these leftists blind to this? Well, leftism is the no-fault 
default ideology, which has as its, uh, its basic premise that it is benign and benevolent by definition and that everything else is evil. So if you oppose what it, what it promotes, you are evil, whereas what they promote is good by default. Uh, so you see like a lot of right-wingers trying to defend themselves against the charges of leftists by effectively saying, oh, no, no, we're not that bad. Uh, whereas really what they should say is we're not like you. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's like the default no-fault ideology, and it's accorded this kind of moral probity uh, by 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 default. It's it's really quite stunning. And so I, as I can only speak to why I couldn't see the criminality is that they keep it from you. Um, so in, in the indoctrination process into leftism, you're, you're force-fed all these books and all these ideas and all these positions that, you know, you should take with reference to this, that, and the other thing. And you're never led to see the, the, the obvious and egregious flaws and uh, uh, the obvious totalitarian character of what you're looking, what you're espousing. Uh, you're, never, you're never really allowed to see it. You're not shown so I had never heard of the Black Book of Communism as a communist, for example. Now, that may make me, uh, maybe I was just uh, slightly uneducated, but, I, you know, some, some Marxists have heard of it, but they dismissed it immediately. Oh, that's been, that's been debunked. Debunked in what sense? There's only one part of it that was debunked. Not the crimes, not the total numbers of people killed, not the actual historical events, but just the introductory comparison of communism to Nazism. That's the only thing that's been challenged. Everything else stands. So uh, it, it's, it's for some reason not allowed to compare anything to Nazism at all. Everything else is uh, lily white by comparison to Nazism. And everything else, um, can, nothing can ever be put in the same category, even for... Uh, even in terms of uh, the kinds of crimes that were committed and the numbers of people killed. But you also do in some places make the distinction between the influence of, of postmodernism, postmodern thinking on, on our kind of current um, yeah. cultural moment and, and, neo-marxism because it seems to me like everyone on the right they just love to call everything marxism and yeah. it's, it's really yeah. not <laughs> right um what, does that distinction matter anymore why so yeah i think it does because um so so there is a neo-marxism but it isn't postmodern postmodernism postmodern theory is not neo-marxist it's post-marxist and that's right. a distinct that's an important way to put it i think the neo-Marxism yeah. is the Frankfurt School, uh, Gromsky, uh, and other theorists, uh, contemporary people, almost contemporary, I guess, like Aronowitz and uh, uh, Frederick Jameson and, and people like this. Uh, but uh, the, the, the reason why postmodernism is not Marxist is because it was distinctly a reaction against Marxism. In the, in the uh, in France after the failure of the student rebellion in 1968, and so uh, 
what it was was saying, look, uh, Marxism is uh, attempting to overthrow the totality. Well, we're, we're saying there is no totality to overthrow. It is, there is no totality. You can't grasp a totality. Uh, everything is partial. Everything is uh, local. Everything is this, that. So it, it, it is a difference. Now, what it does carry over, without going too much into postmodernism and postmodern theory like deconstruction and uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic theory mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Foucauldian uh, power analysis and so forth, the one thing that it does c- take uh, adopt from Marxism is the is this ethos of the uh, the the underdogism the ethos of the the dyad the oppressor oppressed dyad it, it it maintains this it just converts it into uh, other terms but even Derrida whose whole thing was about language uh, and showing how language was uh, uh, in you know conducive of oppression and and so on he even mm-hmm. said that underneath of it all he's a marxist so there's the, there is a commonality there's the common ethos of uh this idea that there are these oppressors and these oppressed and uh we and even with foucault it's you know power analysis and uh He's always taking the side of the so-called beleaguered underdogs. And, and uh, so he takes Nietzsche, whose will to power was the basic uh, modus operandi of life, all life, not just human life, and he flips it on its head, sort of like Marx flipped Hegel on his head. That is, he says, power is the modus operandi, but we must oppose it. Whereas for Nietzsche, it was embracing power. So Foucault is always about opposing the powerful, and uh, and that's a very uh, inverted Nietzscheism. Uh, so uh, there's a distinction between the two, uh, often often not uh, made clear, uh, especially in people like my friend Jordan Peterson. Uh, who dubs it like neo-Marxism and then all these other people by the droves, you know, saying it's, and this makes you look bad to the left because they know it isn't, you know, I, I know for a fact that when I was a Marxist, I opposed postmodernism, And so <laughs> I wrote essays against postmodern theory. So I know mm-hmm. there are Marxists that hate postmodern theory. They hate it. Um, so I was one of those. So you, you, you kind of expose yourself to, uh, ridicule and being dismissed when you don't point out the actual distinctions that exist. Yeah, it's become a very kind of tired truism at this point, but there's doesn't seem like we can pry it away from <laughs> from the grip of, of people who use it. Yeah. Uh, but if we go back to that oppressor versus oppressed relationship and we look at political ponderology, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's something interesting to look at here. And, and you write about that, how Lubaszewski explains that totalitarian ideology operates on two levels. Uh, original ideology are taken at face value by true believers, while the party insiders substitute secondary meanings for the same terms. So yes. can you talk to us a little bit about about that and how you see that operating real world, real world examples like how you see that in yeah. everyday life or in our yeah. um, 
Yeah. Okay. Um, so just to make that clear, what, are, what that is, is that there's two layer, there's two sides of ideology, uh, for, uh, according to Lobachevsky, and I think this is an excellent analysis that he makes. And that mm-hmm. is the true believers take the ideology on face value. Workers of the world unite. This is, you know, uh, this is all for the working class. Uh, we're going to uh, emancipate and liberate the workers uh, and all of these things. And the idea that we'll take over the means of production and uh, that uh, it'll be a democratically uh, economic democracy and all this kind of stuff. Well, the, that's the true believers. They embrace this. But the pathocrats who end up in, tr- uh, in charge of these regimes don't believe this at all. They, they just use it, and it means something else to them. So when you say uh, the workers will have control, you know, they know that it will be the party and the state. That the, that the party controls. When, when they say in the current context, uh, we're going to save the planet and you know, from climate change, that, to them it means we're going to lock you down and we're going to take away your uh, meat and we're going to reduce your population and we're going to also uh, control your um, oil per- consumption and we're going to have greater control over your every move because we're going to institute uh, these dicta, dicta to mitigate climate change. And I, I don't even know whether they believe in climate change or whether they sort of believe it and tell themselves they believe it, but then at the same time, they know what it signifies for them, which is power and control. So I think it's the same thing. Uh, you know, there's a sense in which the rulers you know, sort of cynically uh, cynically embrace the ideologies that they purvey. You know, they're saying it out of two sides of their mouth at once. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.